0: This text is the 8th chapter of the Gospel of John, beginning at verse 12. John's Gospel, chapter 8, verses 12 through 20. Again, therefore, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but, but shall have the light of life. The Pharisees therefore said to him, "You' bear witness, you're bearing witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. And Jesus answered and said to them, "Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true, for I know where I come, came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going." You people judge according to the flesh. I'm not judging anyone. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone in it, but I and he who sent me. Even in your law it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. And so they were saying to him, "Where is your father?" And Jesus answered, "You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also." These words he spoke in the treasury, as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him, because his hour had not yet come. How to handle pressure? Someone was talking with Harry Truman one time about the pressures of the presidency and that crusty old politician who always felt freedom to express how he felt expressed his philosophy concerning pressure and said, if you don't like the heat, get out of the kitchen. Well, that's one way that folks respond to pressure with fright or or flight but it's not the best way. Pressure is something all of us have known. Um, The kitchen is not the only place where you feel the heat, is it? Pressures come from unfinished tasks, too much work to do. The demands of other people upon you images that we feel challenged to to meet, images that we have of ourselves and images that other people have of us. We feel a disparity between what we want out of life and what we feel life is extracting from us. Deadlines and ambition and competition all add to pressure. Each of us has felt it. I thought about organizing a kind of a fraternity, kind of a, uh, an order, and I, I'm going to name it the Order of, of Pressured Americans. I'm going to get me a little lapel pen with this guy, you know, with sweat pouring off his brow, and, I, and we'll get us a little cards to carry around in our pocket. I bet you could be a, a member, a cha- charter member of the Order of Pressured Americans. Uh, let's see if you qualify. Do you usually plan more for a day than is humanly possible to accomplish? Are you disappointed with yourself and self-condemnatory when you don't accomplish all you've planned? Are you driven, ever driven by ego needs to take on more than you can handle? Do you take worries to bed with you at night? Do you feel tired just thinking about all you have to do? Have you ever felt your life was out of control? Are you ever tied in knots emotionally? Do you lose your temper with little cause? Ever fly off the handle at people? Then I'm telling you, if you can answer yes to one of these, you can be a member of the order. But I'm not going to spend time this morning trying to identify and define pressure points or convince you that you have pressure What I want to do is try to answer the question, how to handle it, how to live with pressure. The best suggestion comes out of a conversation that Jesus had with the Pharisees. It might surprise some of you that the best advice we have on how to handle life's pressures comes from a man who lived 2,000 years ago. And some of you might be tempted to ask, what on earth does he know about pressure? Well, he lived with painfully acute pressure from his family who misunderstood and tried to manipulate him, from his disciples who at every turn misunderstood his ultimate purpose. Impetuous Peter kept saying, "Not go to the cross, don't go to the cross. And all of the disciples had their dream wishes about him. And the scribes and the Pharisees tried to unsettle him And the zealots, bloodthirsty for revolution, tried to pressure him into political combat. And the priest in Jerusalem twisted every word he said and engineered his death. And sometimes the crowds were so great that they almost crushed him with their needs. And they begged him and clamored around him asking for signs and miracles and physical healing. And everybody wanted a piece of him. But not very many people heard or heeded his call to the ultimate kingdom and to the cost of discipleship. And he lived with that pressure. And so it was in one of these pressure-filled debates with the Pharisees that he gives our greatest suggestion on how to handle life's pressures. It was after he had claimed, I am the light of the world, that these men said, you bear witness of yourself, and that witness is not true. And, then, and the implication being that in the Mosaic uh, regulation, before a statement or a, a, a word could be validated as truth in a court, it had to be attested to by two witnesses. And so Jesus responded to their challenge with one of these great I Am statements like the choir has just sung about. He said, I am He who bears witness of Myself. And it was very incisive, that great I am statement. As Messiah, He could bear witness to Himself. His own life was a self-authenticating witness as Emmanuel, God with us. But But to fulfill the Mosaic code, He went on to say, And the Father who sent me bears witness of me. And it was in that marvelous, assured self-identification that Jesus felt this confidence, this courage to encounter those around Him. And it was in that creative inner energy, creative inner pressure that He was able to, to combat this destructive external pressure and the clue being the way to handle life's pressures is to have an intimate relationship with God the Father. And there are four aspects to the answer that Jesus gave. Four aspects to how to handle pressure. I want you look at them with me. First, know who you are. Who are you? As long as we're in search of ourselves, as long as we're in search of our true identity, college friends, there'll always be this pressure. Who are you? Sometimes when I go off on a retreat or I work with small groups, I'll ask this question, give 10 answers to the question, who are you? And invariably, I get answers like this. I'm a housewife, female, mother and teacher, or I'm a male father, uh, husband, um, uh, businessman, preacher. But if our own self identity doesn't go beyond the classification of our sex and status and profession, we'll always live under this debilitating pressure. Because we are in search of ourselves, oftentimes, causes us to imitate people around us. That's where peer pressure comes in. That's where this this squeezing into a mold that Paul talks about comes in. As long as we're in search of ourselves, we tend to imitate other people. Like a little boy mimicking his favorite baseball player. He wears his hat and he swings the bat just like Johnny Bench. And so we paste on these bits and pieces of other people's lives onto ours. And that's not altogether wrong, but the tragedy is we never find ourselves our true identity. Like the man of whom it was said, he came into the world an original and he left a copy. And because we're in search of ourselves, always in search of our true identity, it causes us to look for our identity in our profession or our position. And so someone had on his gravestone, he was born a human being and he died a grocer. And I'm not knocking grocers. What I am saying is that as long as we're in search of our identity, we're inclined to find that identity in some position or profession. And there's pressure in that. In order to handle pressure, you have to find out who you are. And the way you find out who you are, listen, is to find out whose you are. Garden Kleinert said, told about a man, young man who rebelled against his father and mother, one, one night went out and got drunk. He was in an automobile accident. He, he suffered from amnesia, couldn't remember. I know you know the meaning of amnesia, but I just wanna throw out, he couldn't remember his name. And so he languished in the hospital for weeks and he wondered who he was. He wondered if he had a name. And finally he began to wonder if he was worth having a name because he didn't know who he was. Kleinert said one day a stranger came with a nurse and stood in the door of the hospital room and his eyes brimmed with tears and he said, it is him, it's he. I found him, he said. Thank God the search is over. And he went into his To the the patient he said, you're my brother. You share my father's name. You have a place in our family. You have a position in my father's business. You belong to us. And the nurse said that the patient looked like he had been born again. The way you find out who you are is to find out whose you are. And that's what Jesus meant when he said, I am he who bears witness of myself. It was as if he said, I know who I am, really who I am. More than Mary's son, more than a carpenter, more than the Galilean, more than a rabbi, a healer. He knew that he was son of God. He knew that he was God. He knew he was Messiah. He knew he was the light of the world. He knew who he was. And so he said to these Pharisees, back off, bucko. That's the tittle translate. back off because you cannot upset me or distort me. I know who I am. Now allow your mind this morning to relish in who you are because of Him. Are, are you with me? I want you to get this so exciting. Allow your mind to relish this morning who you are because of Him. Children of God. Co-inheritors with Jesus Christ. Chosen and elected. Forgiven and loved. And allow your mind to soar as you remember what Jesus said about you. He said, your friend and disciple and sheep and light and salt created in the image of God with a nature like His, He has set eternity in our heart. And you know what that means? It means that most of our problems are not because we think too highly of ourselves. Most of our problems are because we actually think too little of ourselves. For would a person really do these petty things to himself and to others if he really realized who he was? And so Jesus told the parable about the boy who came to his father and said... I want what's mine. I can hear the conversation. Dad, I'm going to split. I'm going to cut out on this. I'm tired of the the limitations, the restrictions. I want out. And so the father, encouraging the son, pleading with the son, entreating the son said, Oh son, the only limitation I put on you is the limitation of love but I want to be free, oh son. There is no freedom like the freedom of my love, but I want out of here, I'm leaving. And so the time came for the son to go. And the father said, perhaps as the son started out the door, son, remember who you are. And as he started out the gate, the father may have called, son, remember whose you are. And in the far country he wasted his substance in riotous living and in the hog pen the scripture says that he came to himself. I love that, I love it. He came to himself. For there in the far country away from the father he wasn't himself, not his true self. And so he came to himself and said, what's the son of my father doing here? And he went home. When you come to yourself, your true self, Then and only then are you free to say, I'm the child of God. He guides my life. And there's liberation from bondage. There's freedom from pressure. Secondly, we must decide whom we shall please. Now for Jesus, it wasn't any problem. He he said, I am he who bears witness of myself. And then he said... And the Father who sent me bears witness of me. He lived his whole life for the Father. You see that? He lived his whole life for the Father. And because he lived his whole life in absolute dependence upon the Father and in the Father's plan, He he could confront this pressure from without from these people who wanted to make him into someone he was not called to be. He could could combat that pressure. You see, his family came to him and they said, Jesus, come on home. You've got a responsibility after all to your mother and she's about to go crazy worrying about you. And his disciples said to him, now Jesus, not the cross, we have got another plan. This is our plan. And the crowds that gathered around him began to shout, Bread King, we want you Bread King, we want you Bread King. But Jesus never felt pressure at all from that. You know why? Because he had already decided that he was there only to please the Father. And he said it. He said, I do only those things that please him. And I want to invite you young people, I want to invite you adults to join that great procession of people who have placed Jesus Christ first in their life and have found freedom over the pressure of conformity. Lloyd Ogilvie said that one day he was really busy and involved in his work and writing and and so he just told his secretary, he said, Alice, I just want to tell you how much I appreciate all the work you do here for me and you're just extra special. And he said, Alice said, in deepest respect, Pastor, I'm not here to please you. I'm here working for the Lord. I'm here on orders from the Lord. And Lloyd Ogilvy continued when he said, Alice didn't feel any pressure to please me. She was working for Christ. She was playing her part of life on the stage of life for Him. I hope I can convince you somehow, or the Holy Spirit can, that until Christ is securely in charge of our lives, we're always going to be vulnerable to pressure. Our insecurities will demand it. Wanting to be approved by people. Wanting to be loved and accepted by people will drive us to conform to be what they want us to be rather than what he wants us to be. And so we have to make our decision. We may have to make our mind, our settle, settle the issue. I'm here to please him first. No, decide whom you're, you're going to please. Third, after you discover who you are, And you determine whom you will please, then you can know what you're to do. I was reading the editorial page of the Dallas Morning News last week, and I was uh, there was an article in there, a piece in there by a syndicated writer, writing about the downing of the of the, uh, of the Korean airline under the title "Flight to Nowhere," and in this. Um, editorial, she, she talked about that just a few months ago, she herself was on a flight from Seoul, Korea to Tokyo to Honolulu. And she said they landed in Tokyo and they took on passengers there. And many of the passengers were uh, young Japanese couples who were on a honeymoon trip to Honolulu. And and she said, the cabin was just filled with gaiety and excitement and everybody was just having a good time as that plane hurtled out into the night. And she said, they flew for about an hour. Then the pilot came on and said, we regret to inform you that we have lost our navigation equipment and we're going to turn back and try to land." And she said, instantly, the mood of that cabin changed. She said, you could cut the tension, the anxiety, the fear with a knife. She said, I overheard two stewardesses talking in the bay. I can't believe this, I just can't believe it. And she said, I watched as one steward went over at the back of the plane, bowed his head and began to pray. And she said, I knew we were in big trouble. And she said, young brides begin to sob and to weep and, and, and young husbands, new husbands tried to console them in a kind of a, a, a nervous way. And she said, as we flew back into the night, there was absolute deathly silence except for the sobs and the terror. Well. To make a long story short, they made it. And the next morning, they they got them out of the hotels and they put them back on the plane and they thrust out into the airway again. And she said, as we were flying along, I I identified myself as a writer to the steward. I asked him about the night before. He said, literally, he said, we were literally flying the wrong direction over the Pacific Ocean. And he said, if we had kept on flying, he said, we would have flown until we'd run out of fuel. But he said, the navigator, just by chance, just by chance, noticed that the wind speed and the wind direction was wrong according to their navigation equipment and figured it out. And he said, if it hadn't been for that, we would have flown until we perished on a flight to nowhere. And then this columnist wrote this sentence. Hear this, she said. It sure is easy to go astray when you're trying to find your way across a thousand miles. And I want to add something to that. You know, Just kind of add a little, little addendum to that. And there is no pressure like the pressure of hurtling out through life and not knowing where you're going. No pressure like that. Now Jesus said, I know who I am and where I came from. Therefore, I know what I'm to do. And that's always the result of discovering that true person who lives inside of you. Notice his bold assertion. He said, I know where I came from and I know where I'm going so that everything he did was consistent with his purpose on the cross. And we're told that near the end of his ministry, he set his face toward Jerusalem, but his heart had already been set there. He had already decided who he was going to please, and therefore he decided what he was going to do. He was going to do what the Father wanted him to do. And in the 13th chapter of John there is that marvelous scene where it says that Jesus washed the feet of the disciples and the scripture says, John says, Jesus knowing that the Father had placed all things in His hand, knowing that He came from God and that He was going to God, He took a towel and washed their feet. What a word it wasn't. In His forgetfulness that he, and that he forgot who he was, that he bowed down and washed their feet. But in the full consciousness of it, it wasn't that he forgot he was God and started acting like a servant. It was that he knew he was God and he wanted to act like him, that he bowed down and ministered. And notice the progression. Notice the progression. He did what he did because he knew where he came from and he knew where he was going. He wasn't lost. And that makes all the difference in the world, my friend. For when we know we came from God and we're returning to Him, it puts our pressures in a new perspective. I can promise you that. Nobody has pressure, more pressure than a preacher. When our destiny and our destination is settled, we can relax and enjoy life. It means that we can begin to work out of His agenda, not somebody else's and i was reading recently that jesus near the end of his ministry said i have finished my work oh what a word i have finished my work now there were thousands of people who had not been healed and there were millions of people who had not yet heard and he said i have finished my work what did he mean he meant he had come to do what god had wanted him to do and he did it and it was over and no pressure in that we're free to fail and we're free to be daring to step out of boats and walk on water. We're free when Jesus said, It is I, come to me, to step out on, on faith and trust Him. And we can be incisive about our choices and we'll feel a liberating release from the demands of people and life in general. That leads me to the last word. I've got to hurry and finish. Besides, it's hot. If we know who we are and whom we want to please, we can know what we will do and are to do. And then that releases that power of Jesus Christ inside of us, that that enabling, overcoming, equalizing power, Jesus Christ. And that means several things. It means first of all that I can live a day at a time that's what Jesus did. He just got up every morning and says, a great way before it was great while before it was day. And he went out to the Father. And he said, What's for today? The Father said, This for today. I can live a day at a time. It means that I can, I can, I can work on his timing. You know, um, he never was in a hurry, but he never was late. There's no hand wringing. We just work off his timing. That's beautiful. It means that it means that God begins to release in me this powerful peace and this promise becomes a reality that thou will keep it in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on him because he trusts me. And so the Apostle Paul kept insisting that we can have the mind of Christ. Did you Have you ever read that you can have the mind of Christ and you translate that mind and put the word, you can have the disposition and the attitude of Jesus. You can not only have his guidance, you can have his disposition, you can have his attitude. And what was his disposition and attitude? It was of peace. Look at him. The disciples on one occasion, when the, when the Samaritans were pressuring them, they said, why don't we just call down fire and get rid of this crowd? Jesus said, no, 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 not, 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 not that. And one time they were on a boat and it was just being churned up. Jesus was asleep in a boat with his head on a pillow and they woke him up and said, Master, don't you care that we perish? He was just sleeping there, just resting. And when they came out to arrest him on the night of his betrayal, Somebody cut, took a sword and cut off the ear of a guard. And Jesus, in the calm peace of the, and tranquility of his faith in God, just took the ear and put her right back on where she was. And he walked straight up Calvary's Hill and he never flinched. And that same night he said to you, and he said to you, and he said to you and me, I'll give you my peace. Garden Slocum was an engineer. He's an engineer for NASA who became a Christian. He said this, I have become convinced that Jesus Christ is the God behind the physical universe. And the important question is not, am, is God real to me? The important question is, am I real to God? And this fact laid hold upon my mind, he said. That in Jesus Christ God loves me and is interested in me. And so I begin that life's great adventure, placing my life in His hands and starting out to discover what it means to follow God. That's what I want you to do this morning. I want you to discover who you are by discovering whose you are. I want you to know that He's the only one you should please, have to please, and He's the easiest one to please. I mean, He's the easiest guy I know to work for. Not the judge of our failures. He's the enabler of our weaknesses. We're here to please Him and He's easily pleased. He loves you in spite of what you do. Never rejects you. When you know who you are and you decide whom you please, you know what you want to do. You just find out from God every day and as you live in that confident assurance and faith, God begins to release His power inside of you. For my, my God shall supply all your need according to His riches and glory. By Christ Jesus, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this word of God, this word through Jesus Christ concerning pressure. Reminding us but the key to living triumphantly in life is this intimate relationship with God, the discovery of who we are, who we please, what we're called to do, and then laying back in the laid-back faith and relaxation to allow the Spirit of God to be released in us. How we want that today for, our, for each of us, for ourselves. I pray it will be accomplished in Jesus' name. Now, we have three invitations this morning. These are the invitations. First invitation, we respond simultaneously. In other words, you don't wait till I say invitation number two. They all happen at the same time. The first invitation is for you to come and give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. Let me tell you, you were made in His image. You'll never find rest until you rest in Him. He won't let you rest. Pressure's on. Until you give your heart and life to Christ. All kinds of inner and outer pressure. Come and receive Jesus as your Savior. Oh, we've been praying for you. Call some of you by name this week. And heaven's going to rejoice, and angels will celebrate. And the great crowds of heaven will clap because you come today and give your heart to Christ. Second invitation is for you to come and join the church. I know you're away from home, and that church seems like, you know, it seemed like you'd be betraying somebody if you joined the church here. Oh, that's what your church at home wants you to do, college students. That's what God wants you to do. Come and place your life with us here. What a group of you. We need you in our fellowship to complete it, and you need us to complete your life. Perhaps you've been under tremendous pressure, and you've not handled it well because you really have been in search of your identity and you've just really never considered that you're here to please God and you've never even considered asking Him what He wants. You want to come and rededicate yourself, commit yourself to that kind of commitment. Choir's going to sing. Let me tell you what, it's the easiest if you come right on a first word. It's easier for them than any other time. Let's, let's do it. Let's stand we'll invite you to come.